Where were you on January 6th, 2021? I don't mean that in an accusatory way. This isn't a cross-examination. If for no other reason than nobody is yet to be held accountable for that ham-fisted bit of insurrectionist cosplay. But do you remember where you were when it happened? Will you remember decades from now? What I mean is this. My grandparents could always remember where they were when Pearl Harbor was bombed, especially my grandfather who was there during the attack. I remember my parents telling me everyone in their generation knew exactly where they were and what they were doing when John Fitzgerald Kennedy was shot. It's 20 years later and people my age are still swapping stories about what they had for breakfast on 9-11. Every generation has a moment of national trauma that leaves an indelible mark on them. It happens with any shared experience, whether we want it to or not, but with an event so large and jarring that it touches everyone in the country, you can talk to anyone who was alive for it and hear a story that may vary in the details, but sounds eerily the same. Even though I'd seen it a dozen times before, it was hard to watch today's film without putting it in the context of our recent history. Like today, it shows a country divided, protesters clashing in the streets, an embattled president, and hot debates around nuclear treaties. And it centers on a question that seems to be at the core of a great deal of our political discourse today. How far outside the Constitution can you go to preserve the Constitution? This is another one of those edge case war movies that we love so much on Danger Close, complete with the backroom dealings and back alley intrigue that loom in the periphery of any war, but seem to go hand in hand with any Cold War story, be it fact or fiction. But this film also has the added, prescient, underlying knowledge that whoever controls the flow of information gets to write the story. It'll be interesting to see what events my kids remember as adults. Maybe they'll look back on the attack on the Capitol the way my parents do with the JFK assassination. You'd think that an attempted coup would easily make the cut, but gosh, kind of an awful lot has already happened in their short lifetimes. And it's entirely possible that January 6th was barely a blip on their radar. Hopefully it's because it wasn't successful, but possibly if we don't learn the lessons from our history. Because something worse is yet to come. War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So pour yourself a bottle of bourbon every hour on the hour. And come along with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director as we discuss John Frankenheimer's controversial, star-studded second installment in his Paranoia Trilogy, 1964's Cold War sort of science fiction political thriller, Seven Days in May. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. Today, our film is Seven Days in May from 1964. My name is Dan, and I am here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And Katie is here with our mission briefing. Seven Days in May is about a fictional president who signs a nuclear treaty with Russia, enraging his generals to the point of treason. 
General Scott, played by Burt Lancaster, is leading the coup and planning to take over the presidency himself after the assassination. His assistant, Colonel Casey, played to great effect by Kirk Douglas, isn't initially aware of the plan, but as events kick into high gear, he begins to notice some inconsistencies. After gathering evidence, he goes to the president and discusses his concerns, and is then tasked with tracking General Scott while the rest of the president's inner circle works to thwart the plot and find concrete proof before the scheduled assassination. While this film isn't based on true events, it does have an interesting backstory in regards to how it was made. Originally a novel written by journalists Fletcher Nebel and Charles W. Bailey Jr., it was inspired by an interview with a general who bashed JFK to a degree that alarmed Nebel. The two men then dreamed up the story and sent an advanced copy to JFK himself. After reading it, JFK was so inspired by both it and his recent negative experiences with his own generals regarding tensions with Russia, he began reaching out to a few Hollywood contacts, including Kirk Douglas, with encouragement to make the film. Douglas eventually bought the rights, brought in Frankenheimer to direct. Kennedy considered this film to be a warning message to the American people about the dangers of an armed forces that grew too powerful, as he feared his own generals were. The film released to great success and critical love, and is still considered one of the best political thrillers ever made. It was nominated for two Academy Awards, but unfortunately didn't win any. While I'm sure this film felt very prescient at the time of its release, the message continues to be an important one about the balance of power in our democratic republic. So for you guys, did this feel more applicable to our time than the usual film from the 60s? So have we watched the 60s movies on here? I don't think so. I think this is might be our first foray into uh, into the 60s. Right. And I realize that this is part of the quote-unquote paranoid trilogy starting with the Manchurian Candidate in 62, then this, and then Seconds from 66. And I haven't seen either of the other two. And Frankenheimer actually directed the Manchurian Candidate. That was why they enlisted him to direct this film, because they were so impressed with his directing. Yeah, they're, they're, they have a very similar tone. I haven't seen Seconds. I've seen the Manchurian Candidate. And the Manchurian Candidate often overshadows this one, Today, like everybody knows about the Manchurian Candidate, even if you haven't seen it. Well, and there was a very successful remake of that one, not so much uh, this one. Was it very successful? For people who haven't seen the original. For non-Liams. Okay, okay. <laughs> I actually think this one's better than the Manchurian Candidate, but it really doesn't get the same amount of press. No, it doesn't. I knew of this film, uh, mostly because I, I have done a deep dive into Kirk Douglas before. But I hadn't seen it, and when we decided to do the film, I kind of I just briefly looked into it and was like, "Oh, this does seem pretty interesting." And it was quick to catch my interest because of how well directed it is. And Frankenheimer is one of those dudes who his early career is really great, and then his later career is maybe not so great at all. <laughs> So when I saw it was Frankenheimer, I didn't realize he'd done the Manchurian Candidate. I mostly know him is that he is the guy who was tasked with taking over um, the island of Dr. Moreau. Right. And was considered to have botched it. Which I remember that going down on like the all the lists of worst movies ever made. It's like way up there. There's a great documentary about it. We have to do a DCE on that one. Yeah. Because <laughs> that like. The, the War on Humanity? 
Uh, well, sure. The war on filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, that Dude, would be just like, as applicable. The original director like broke back onto the set and oh, like, yeah. it lived in disguise trying to like it was very, very strange things going on with this movie. Oh, and yeah, and it's it shows the insane decline of um, Marlon Brando. And Val Kilmer. A lot of crazy in that movie. Yeah, Val Kilmer. That's yeah. kind of like the beginning of the end for Val Kilmer's career, I think. Nonsense. I've not yet begun to defile myself. It's like, really, you got to watch the movie and then watch the documentary, and it gives you this crazy perspective on what a shit show the whole thing was. I am definitely down to do that. I- I've watched both of them. And so I came into this like, Frankenheimer? Really? <laughs> and then I watched this, and I was like, Okay, I could I guess I can see why he was a respected director cuz this is really 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 well done and as we get into it he, he was really dedicated to making this film happen and did some pretty cool stuff to pull off some of these shots. The movie grabs you right away because of you know the climate that we're in now which many people have compared to the 60s and the civil rights movement which this is and the cold war Right. So this is set a little bit in the future, but it's relatively contemporary. And while it doesn't deal with civil rights, they're adjacent, they're contemporary issues to the civil rights movement. And when you think about all the footage we've seen of protests and fighting and police versus protesters, etc. from the last few years, it really hit home to watch a depiction in a film of protesters in front of the White House And I also felt that the most interesting use of cinematography and the camera angles and stuff was right there at that in those beginning shots where they really made you feel like they were handheld cameras of someone as if someone in that Mm -hmm. protest was holding the camera. And there was a couple of them in the crowd all the way to I think when the police uh, bikes start coming in, the police motorcycles come in. Yep. There's one that's fixed on like the policeman's shoulder or on the back of the bike or something like that. Yeah, before the ages of steady cam. Yeah, it just felt like for the time I found those camera angles to be really interesting and that work really tied me into what was going on at the beginning and so that made me pay attention right away while I think the film lets go of that a little bit for the rest of it. It's not quite as interesting with the camera angles, et cetera. It just kind of goes more into the dialogue and the story and the sort of tension. Right. Some pretty straight, flat shots, wide angles. Yeah, a little more straightforward to the point where I had moments on my first viewing where I got a little bit bored or sort of spaced out a little bit and I had to kind of come back into it because of the conversation or whatever. And I I just knew I was going to watch it again. So I watched it a second time around this time. And I was pretty much gripped the whole time. I definitely didn't have a problem keeping up because I knew the characters better. And I understood who all these different old white dudes were. And (laughs) I've done a little more reading. So I I texted uh, Dan and Liam while I was watching this and said, I have a really hard time keeping track of who all of these old white men are because they all. I was like, don't tell me you can't tell the difference between Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster. Like, I just can't help you if that's the case. That's true. And and no, those two are easily recognizable. One has the chin. The other has too many teeth to fit in three human mouths. (laughs) So, but it was all the other people. I was like. Okay, who is this again, and what is he doing here? Like but- Burt Lancaster is a good-looking dude. Go, don't get me wrong, but like I think he's part alligator. 
I would say <laughs> shark personally in that, especially in this movie, because he just feels very cold and mm-hmm. emotionless. He does that real well. There's a few movies yeah. like Sweet Smell of Success where he does that that cold calculating thing like really, really well. In this, it has like a weird, it, it's kind of chilling when he's being very friendly. It's predatory. That's what yeah. it felt like to me, especially in his conversations with Kirk Douglas. Mm-hmm. In the in the big scene where he's trying to feel out whether or not Douglas knows what's going on and where his loyalties lie. Yeah. This is my first Burt Lancaster film, so. No shit. That I know hey. of. Mm-hmm. All right. Welcome to Lancaster. He's how great. Did, how did you find Burt? I think thought he was good. I felt that he played the part correctly, meaning that the part was written for someone who was not necessarily an antagonist, but a little bit more morally ambiguous and someone who, depending on your own personal politics, you could sympathize with because he wasn't portrayed as an outright fascist or a hardcore right winger the way some of the people his character was based on actually were in real life. I think they walked a little closer to the middle, not completely. He's definitely on the right in terms of military power and that type of concept. But I think they did a good job of keeping him a somewhat sympathetic character where it's like, okay, you're concerned. Up until the end. I think that final scene between him and the president where he just really lays it out, that I think is where he becomes fully a villain yeah or at least the antagonist in the rest of it it feels like he he has his reasons and as a military man you can understand that that's how he's going to think about the world right and we'll talk about that end scene more i'm sure later but but to answer liam's question about just how i found his acting i found the character well balanced and well written and his acting seemed to match that where he was playing the game so to speak and it fit it felt believable it felt realistic Uh, I don't know how realistic nowadays it would be for a general to go out in front of a crowd and give like a political rally speech like that. And I don't know that that ever happened even in the 60s. But aside from that, I liked what he did with the character and it wasn't overboard because otherwise it could have turned very cartoonish very quickly. Yeah. And so I like the balance that he drew there. The nuance is what makes this film. If you don't have that nuance, then... Much in the way of... uh, of something like fight club originally they had wanted Kirk Douglas to play general Scott. Yes. And he lured Lancaster to the role by saying, well, I'll give you the juicy role and I'll play the assistant because mm-hmm. they wanted another big name on this one. Plus he probably wanted to kiss Ava Gardner. <laughs> Gorgeous. I, I got to say, speaking of <laughs> keeping track of old white actors, They really threw us a bone, I felt like, with Frederick March, because I think his name, his look, and the times really connect him to Lyndon Johnson. At least in my mind, that's I I really related him to Lyndon Johnson. Lyman, Lyndon, you know, there's a slight similarity in the name Mm -hmm. there, and I think his face looks a lot like Johnson's. And that may be coincidental, but for the time in which it was made... It was made during the Kennedy administration, but Johnson was president due to the assassination by the time this came out. So I think in people's minds, that probably would have also been a pretty strong connection. And I don't know how Johnson felt about nuclear disarmament necessarily, but of course they were about to, they were starting to get embroiled in Vietnam. 
etc. So yeah, there's a lot of contemporary stuff going on. There. I don't think that, and again, I'm not a historian, but from from my understanding, I I feel like the the military's view of Kennedy and the military's view of Johnson were pretty different. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite as hostile. <laughs> I feel like Johnson would have had more backing from the brass than Kennedy did. Yeah, and I think anytime you watch anything like a documentary film that depicts the Bay of Pigs invasion and all of that, you know, that failed coup, essentially, you can see that Kennedy is kind of an outsider and this plan was already in place when he took the office and and you could tell he was this young guy nobody trusted and that his cabinet kind of all, you know, he was still moving things around. And so mm-hmm. I think that fits with the whole concept of the military, not really trusting the president. And those things kind of blend into the characters in this film, I feel like. Yeah. And it's important to remember that. Uh, so the screenwriter for this was Rod Serling, who's most well known for doing the Twilight Zone. And Serling walked this very interesting political line during a very difficult time in Hollywood in regards to politics and making this kind of movie. And I, from what I read, it seemed like, you know, this book when it came out was pretty expected and people were excited for it. But there was a lot of hesitancy about making a film out of it because of the content. The Pentagon certainly did not approve of this film. They did not submit this script to the Pentagon for a reason. And usually if you are doing a film about the military, you have to submit your script to the Pentagon. And if they are okay with it, they'll then give you, you know, places to shoot, materials, footage, whatever you need. There, There's, what, two, maybe three speeches in this that are very much Rod Serling, in particular, the last speech by the president. So this can't help but be a political film, especially of the time. Now you can kind of look at it and just take it as the political thriller that it's presenting itself as. But at the time, it was considered such a big political commentary, we mm-hmm. shall say. Yeah. Before we, before we move on from Serling, because I know Liam will have more to say about that, I have to read this brief quote from a, a Time article that was the 15 best political thrillers, I think. Oh, great. And it starts off by saying, quote, Seven Days of May was scripted by Twilight Zone creator and moralizing nag Rod Serling. Yes, which means I read the, this. The viewer must endure occasional scenes of cringe-inducing, self-righteous blather shoehorned into an otherwise exceptional political thriller. <laughs> I was cracking up when I read that. The person, I, I'm sorry, Rod Serling, I know you're dead now, but I'm still sorry for saying it. The person is not wrong. <laughs> like, it does come across as very moralizing and like at the audience yes but so and this is this is where i want to talk about the writing not so much not so much about rod serling but in that i i kind of feel like aaron sorkin masturbates with pages of the screenplay right right. (laughs) like this has just i'm sorry did i break you i apologize you broke katie I mean, you just spoke my truth, Liam. That's all you did is you spoke my truth because I, I, I hate Aaron Sorkin. And I'm speaking as like a, a, a longtime Aaron Sorkin fan. You're not against long-winded preachy monologues. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not against long-winded preachy huh. monologues. I, I, I like snappy dialogue. 
you know, it's a big influence on me as far as my dramatic writing goes and like certain turns of phrase and things like that. I'm nodding along right now to this yes. statement. <laughs> so I can't like denounce Aaron Sorkin, but like the president's name was Lyman and there's like one of his best characters was Josh Lyman in the West Wing. There's a lot of like all there's so many different archetypes that are in this that also appear in like all of Aaron Sorkin's stuff. Uh, I think where like Rod Serling moralizing and preaching versus Aaron Sorkin moralizing and preaching Rod Serling never quite feels as self-satisfied and smarmy as Aaron Sorkin is want to be from time to time. Agreed. Serling feels more earnest. Yeah, earnest was... Much less self-aggrandizing and more trying to reach the audience. Right. And I like the speeches for the record. I bought them. They felt genuine. I, oh, yeah. I liked what he did. And they feel very much like political speeches, having watched quite a few of them. You know, political speeches are always propaganda or right next to it, you know? Right. Liam, why don't you take us back a little bit? Because this was your pick, and I know you have a connection to this film. So why don't you lead us in that way? Yeah, so it's not like a direct connection, but my so my my grandfather was in the army. He was a sergeant major, and uh, he actually worked in the Pentagon for longer than you'd normally be stationed in one place from my understanding, like having, having the same job. A lot of that was because he was really good at his job. Also, my grandmother was like terrified of travel. <laughs> so like would not get on a plane in her life. Like Kubrick. Yeah. Sort of like my grandmother was very much like Kubrick in that respect, <laughs> <laughs> especially around the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was in charge of, it's fun to say he ran the Pentagon. He was in charge of like the day-to-day -day operations. So like custodial staff, like the, the motorcade, he was in charge of, you know, like organizing all of those things. But they lived on Fort Myer and that's where my dad grew up. And they were there when this movie was filming. And so there are shots from Fort Myer where my dad's house that he grew up in is like just off camera somewhere. Very cool. You know, and, uh, my my grandparents got invited to go to the to go to the premiere in DC. You know, so it was it was very cool. My my so the area where my grandparents' house was, they actually lived in two different houses on Fort Myer at different points because they were there for so long that during Vietnam they actually expanded Arlington Cemetery and they were tearing down the houses. So they actually got picked up and like relocated to another area of the base. And, you know, the, the first house they lived in, they lived there for a long time. They were very, very happy there, you know, like happiest times of their lives, that kind of thing. So my grandfather and now my grandmother are buried in Arlington cemetery. And what's kind of funny and kind of cool is that they are buried pretty much on the same spot where their first house was. Oh, crazy. Oh, on the base. So that's, that's sweet. Yeah. That's where they're at now. But yeah. So like my, my dad showed this to me and he was like, Oh yeah, this is that. And that's that, you know, when I was little and I was like, Oh, okay, cool. Tell me more about that. 
you know, they used to like go play baseball in Arlington cemetery. Like, you know, like that was their, that was their backyard mm-hmm. growing up. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, kind of always felt like a bit of a connection with the movie in that respect, but it's also just a really, it's a really cool. What if kind of movie, because like you said, it's, it takes place in the near future for 1963 you know, and the things that I was reading about it was like from the the way they talk about it and the events that are going on around imply that it's probably around like 1975 is when it's supposed to be. In the book, it's 1974. And in the film, it's 1970. Well, that's they never say exactly that it's 1970, but there's like tags on cars that would indicate that the year like registration tags that are for 1970 but when they talk about like where it is versus the next election they're like that's probably 1975 right i kept trying to pin this down because i was like oh did they do the math and figure this out so that it could be a specific year and whether they did it on purpose or whether they just got lazy they didn't so liam's hit on a few of these things but basically the year is either 69, 70, 71, or 75. And there are different bits of evidence that point to each of those. So you can't conclusively say. 1970 does show up in a few of the diagrams and pictures and stuff. And some of Mm -hmm. the um, car tags are either 69 or 70. But once you start looking at the day of the week and the date, there's only certain years that it matches. And 71 and 75 is one of them. Plus, like you said, they talk about a midterm election in nine and a half months or whatever it is. And that would have right. matched a certain year. What day is it? The date. 12 May Thursday. What year? One of the cool things that is mentioned in the trivia is that we don't really notice this now as modern viewers, but a 1964 audience would have seen a lot of these scenes as futuristic. So Mm -hmm. for example, in Scott's office, so all the video conferencing stuff that didn't exist. Those were right. props they made up for the film. I was wondering, because I was like, I feel like they did not have this capability then without like they did not. a full on camera rig set. Right. Yeah. There's no camera, right? It's obviously just a playback. But a few of these things were thrown in to sell this near future aspect to the viewer. So it was that the slideshow that he projects onto the wall that again, you don't see a projector. It just looks like magic that didn't exist and they had to do that through some kind of trickery as well as once you get into the more militaristic scenes later the soldiers at the base y or whatever camp y Mm -hmm. have m16s but m16s hadn't come out yet they hadn't been issued to the army yet so the m16 was a brand new I think it might have been the XM16 or the CM16. I can't remember the designation while it was being tested, but it was still being tested in 63. So the few M16s that you see were designed to be, you know, the new rifle that the general population didn't necessarily know. Like to us, it's ubiquitous now, right? We see that and we're like, oh yeah, Vietnam era, mid 60s till now, you know, basically. But at the time, it was a new rifle that people hadn't really seen. And so, it, and it's pretty different from an M1 or an M14, these sort of, World War Two, you know, stragglers and Korean War stragglers. So, yeah, there's little tidbits here and there that are supposed to remind you that you're in the future that we wouldn't necessarily catch. For sure. So another thing that puts this in the time period when you read about how it was made was this weird. A lot of times nowadays, I feel like you don't hear this a lot. It's either 
Yes, the government and the military supported this film, and so they gave them, DOD gave them access to aircraft carriers and, you know, being able to take shots. Or it's like, no, they did not, because it makes the U.S. look bad in such and such a way. And so the production has to go out of its way to build sets and do other things to incorporate those things. Here you have a mixed bag of, you know, JFK loved this book and talked to Kirk Douglas about getting the film made. And he had this weird relationship with the military where he was a new president. The military didn't necessarily trust him. Well, and the Bay of Pigs had happened. Right. And and the biggest thing that the thing that actually inspired this whole thing, as I mentioned in the mission briefing, is the interview that one of the authors had was with uh, General Curtis LeMay, who was an active general and one of Kennedy's, and he greatly disapproved of how Kennedy handled the Bay of Pigs and then the future conflicts with Russia. He looked at Kennedy as being very weak, and I think that definitely affects how all of this, because the authors of the book knew that. So they were aware of how much conflict there was between, you know, the executive branch and the military. LeMay was mentioned in our Grave of the Fireflies episode because he really pushed those firebombing campaigns as a general in the Air Force. He Mm. sort of was a big proponent of this quote-unquote precision bombing or more precision than what they were doing before. And so that tells you a little bit about LeMay's background as well. But yeah, again, the interesting thing here is that the government was kind of divided on this film. The military and the Pentagon, the FBI, especially Hoover's FBI, was not excited about this. And it's hard to put yourself in this time period because nowadays we know Hollywood has this reputation for being mostly super liberal and on the left. And people who are really conservative have a general bent against Hollywood The difference, though, is that back in this day, a lot of these actors had been in the military. I I, I try and do this, especially with older films. I keep track of which, you know, which part of the crew here had actually served in the military. And it's most of them. You know, the director had been in the Air Force. Rod Serling had been in the Army. The DP had been in the Army. Our president actor, Frederick March, had actually been in the Army in World War I. Kirk Douglas had been in the Navy, even though he portrays a Marine in this. So it's kind of like these are different actors than nowadays. Most actors nowadays have not been in the military. And so when... Unless you're Adam Driver. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're they're around, but they're the exception. Yeah, there's a couple here and there. The difference is that most of these actors had, you know, were Democrats or were left-leaning. And a lot of them were being investigated for, quote-unquote... You know, for by the House, the House on American Activities Committee, led by McCarthy, for being communist sympathizers. There was even a point where, from these FBI memos that have now been released and are still somewhat censored or redacted, but you can read most of it. You know, this film and Doctor Strangelove got a lot of crap for communist sympathies and detrimental to the military, quote unquote. And in these memos, you can see accusations of Lancaster, especially being part of several communist front organizations, Mm -hmm. attending parties of known homosexuals. And it's got like the list of (gasps) dates of when he went to those parties. So, you know, we can't forget about McCarthyism and what era this film was made in. But again, it's so different from now. Right. And that's why 
JFK really helped get this made Mm -hmm. is because it would have been a very controversial and difficult film to get made at that point in time. But because it had the executive branch behind it, they were able to kind of push forward a little bit. Yes. Uh, That being said, I also think that if Kirk Douglas wanted to make this movie, this movie was getting made. Right. This is kind of Kirk Douglas's thing. Man, I had to look it up too. He was 48 when he made this. He is he was oh. such a young and good-looking dude. I was like, "Wow, he's almost 50." He's been around for a long time. He died on my birthday last year. Yeah, he's 104. Mm. He was he was such a great actor. I can't wait for us to do Paths of Glory. I'm so excited for that one. I don't know how the hell you shave that chin dimple with like an actual razor. Right. But I feel like once the electrics <laughs> came out, you know those uh, you know those machines you see that are like tunnel boring machines that have just the cone at the front with a screw. I feel like that's the attachment that you need to shave that because di- it's like totally clean shaven. And I'm like, how in the hell did he clean that up? Oh yeah, he got right in there. But Kirk Douglas, so this was made. This is sixty three. Spartacus came out in nineteen sixty. Oh my God. I didn't realize he was that old when he made Spartacus. Mid 40s shirt off. He was the Chris Hemsworth of his day with that abs. With Spartacus, he essentially ended the blacklist Mm. by giving a screen credit to Dalton Trumbo. Right. (gasps) That's right. Because up until that point, like Dalton Trumbo was probably the, the, biggest name among the writers who had communist sympathies who were blacklisted. But by the way, you didn't actually have to, for anybody at at home who isn't familiar, you didn't actually have to have communist sympathies to be blacklisted and be hauled into the, in front of the house on American activities committee. There was a term that was used for people who were getting blacklisted because they were vocal against the Nazis before America got involved in the war. Before World War before America joined World War II, if you were too vocal against the Nazis, they labeled you as quote prematurely anti-fascist. Whoa. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay. And that would get you in trouble. I, I can end if you were um, any flavor of LGBT. Like, oh yeah, for sure. The, ho- the House of uh, House on American Activities Committee was definitely used as a cudgel by what we would consider the more right wing political factions today to yes. try to control right. Hollywood. Right. But Dalton Trumbo was so good at his job that people were like paying him under the table to write for them, and they would just put somebody else's name that give somebody else the credit. Like mm-hmm. people got Oscars for scripts. They didn't write that Dalton Trumbo wrote. It was like that level. Like you could not say that this was written by Dalton Trumbo. And then Kirk Douglas was like, write this movie for me. And by the way, you're getting screen credit for it. And basically the house on American activities committee can tell me how my dick tastes. Like, I don't care. Yeah. Because I'm Kirk Douglas. Yeah. I mean, he was one of the biggest names at the time. And he was considered like, he was like the Brad Pitt of his era. Absolutely. Everybody loved him. He could take any role and it would make the film a hit. Like, he was considered very classically handsome. I mean, he's, I still consider him handsome today, but. Oh, God. He's 
What a snack. Yeah, right. Exactly. So it, it's like, that makes sense that Douglas would be the one. And, and he was known for his pretty irreverent nature of knowing his own power in Hollywood and being like, I'd do what I want. Mm -hmm. I don't care. I'm not going to let you stop me. Yeah. Burt Lancaster, famous lefty. Very much so. Yeah. He was, he was absolutely on the the left end of the spectrum there, uh, which actually is one of the reasons why he was hesitant to take the role was reportedly he was afraid that it was painting conservatives unfairly. What a dude. (laughs) It was a time of more balanced politics and where you saw more intermixing and of backgrounds too. Yeah. They actually went to war and served in the military. Well, yeah, but so that's the other thing that I wanted to bring up is that like, this is the generation where like, it was right after World War II, like mm-hmm. everybody was in the military. So it wasn't like a particular. And if you weren't in the military, you were working for the military. Like my, my grandpa, my dad's side was um, mostly deaf. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't he wasn't eligible to go to World War Two. Uh, so he drove trucks during World War Two supplies. There were stories about guys who like killed themselves because they were labeled 4F and couldn't go like it's like very, very different environment. But also the idea that everybody had had served meant that there, you know, now there's a very almost kind of us them feel about the military like both from inside and outside. And I think that probably happened most during Vietnam. Right. Where it's like civilians versus like service members. But that wasn't a there. That wasn't a thing at this point. No, Um, because so many people like either you served or you were too young and your dad and your older brother served. Like there was just, it was universal. Right. And that means automatically you're going to have a wider spread of political ideologies amongst veterans because a larger percentage of the population were veterans. Whereas nowadays, uh, generally speaking, people in the military lean conservative. Like it's, I would guess that it's 70 30 or 60 40 or something like that. Right. Right. Whereas back then it was probably a little bit more varied. And so it's interesting. I think from my perspective as a veteran, I just feel like it carries more weight when you're seeing critiques of the government and the military coming from people on the left who served in the military and went to war. Again, not that that's a requirement for anyone to have an opinion, but it's just different if you see a modern war film nowadays that's like no one's a veteran involved and they're pontificating about their opinions that are anti-war or whatever, but it's like, okay, but none of you people have a have that you don't have a balanced perspective right it's just different so i it's just a different environment and interesting to look at nowadays for us 60 years later right and and before we fully move on from talking about the conflict between the military and this film there's a really great story and it's interesting that they were able to film on fort myers because the pentagon because like i said they wouldn't submit the script the pentagon was like no not giving you any access Mm -hmm. so in order to get because there are scenes where douglas is entering and leaving the pentagon and those are actually filmed there and it's what's considered a very early form of guerrilla filmmaking they went into the pentagon with a station wagon and like a sheet over their camera and they dressed kirk douglas up and had him go walk in and walk out. And he got saluted multiple times. Like everybody bought it. And he, he was there for maybe five minutes. And so they get him 
they get the shots of him going in and out, and that was it. Yeah, it may just be him. I don't even know if he went in the building. It might have just been him going up the stairs, taking that shot, and then back down the stairs with with Wolverine saluting him the whole time. He did have a great military walk. Oh, he did. Again, he was in the Navy, so he knows how to wear a uniform, right? Yeah, but you're a Marine, so like you might barely recognize the Navy as a thing. <laughs> We're a department of the Navy, the men's department. They we consider it our our sister, our sister or mother branch. Isn't basically. it the Air Force that you're not friends with? I mean, it's whatever. I think the Army is probably the Marines and the Army are the most antagonistic because throughout okay. history they've actually those commanders have had opportunity to actually fight over who was going to take what because they're both operating on land. So I think like you can see those interactions between, I mean, in World War II, it was a lot of MacArthur and the admirals too. But yeah, so there's probably a little bit more of that. But I also think for viewers who we're working, I know this is on Nate's back burner. Eventually the plan here is for us to create a visual where as we do more films, we fill in the ranks as they come up of, you know, private, corporal, captain, you know, lieutenant, whatever, with actual characters from these films that we do so that eventually we can reference people to it and be like, oh, right. So Tom Hanks in such and such movie would have outranked, you know, Brad Pitt in this other movie. And we can make those comparisons so that it's maybe an easier way for people to tell the difference. So like, good luck outranking James Mattoon Scott. That is also, yeah, four-star general. Four-star general and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I think the only time we will see that is when we do Patton, for example, who I don't know if he was in the film, but eventually he was five, I think. No, because there's only, I think there's only been one five-star general, and that was Eisenhower. I think there were a few of them. We'll, we'll, we'll have to cover that, but. This might be part of the 50% of everything that I don't know, but. Sure. I want to say that, like, the only one I remember hearing about was Eisenhower as the five-star general. Patton, I think, might have maxed out at three. Someone's going to let us know. Yes, they will. Five men. I'm going to be the one to tell you. Five men have held the rank. Oh, look at Katie dropping bombs. Okay, let us have it. George C. Marshall, Douglas MacArthur, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Omar Bradley, and Henry H. Arnold later become the only five-star general in the air force so we're we're both wrong what did uh what did Patton get up to four star four his battlefield okay. exploits uh, uh, okay the thing with these really famous but also really cantankerous generals like macarthur Patton, and chesty puller come to mind is sometimes they got to go all the way up the chain otherwise they kind of stopped them before they got to four star because they were like you're too much of a pain in the ass and if i'm Mm. not (laughs) if i'm not mistaken chesty puller who is the most famous marine ever basically beloved by all marines everywhere it's still a common thing to say good night chesty like when you're in the field and and you're going to sleep because he kind of really was known for looking out for his Marines. I think he only made it to three-star general, and that wasn't because he wasn't in long enough. It's because he talked so much shit to his superiors and did not give a fuck that they were like, yeah, we're not letting you climb the chain. He was the Qui-Gon Jinn of Marines. Yeah, but to go back to my original point is if you want to get a good shot of what a Marine colonel's uniform would look like at the time, and the insignia hasn't changed much, at the party, you can get a really good shot at what colonel's insignia looks like. You see, because you have it on the collar and you have it on the shoulders or on the epaulets there. And it's that's what you call a full bird colonel as opposed to a lieutenant colonel. Lieutenant colonel is a silver oak leaf. 
a colonel actually gets the bird, and that's why they call him a full bird. Again, mm. we've covered this before. Mm-hmm. It's a captain in the Navy, and in every other service, it's a colonel. So here's while we're while we're going down the uh the rabbit hole here of uh military pedantry and stars and this and that and mm-hmm. the other thing stars birds oak leaves there was something like i've heard tell about the consternation that happens when people in the military hear it referred to as the congressional medal of honor because if you say Congressional Medal of Honor, they'll normally just say it's just Medal of Honor. So I actually did some reading on this. So there seems to be some debate about the wording because it's it's selected and presented by the executive branch. But in, in the wording of the presentation, it's awarded on behalf of the congress yeah it's awarded by congress and almost always actually given to the service member by the president by the commander-in-chief right and technically it's called the medal of honor but even back then when obviously the military was more prominent pretty much it's I wonder if they'll ever change the name of it because it's so often called the Congressional Medal of Honor that while technically that's incorrect, that's what like all of Hollywood calls it. It's always, you know, depicted that way. So, well, and also the another thing I was reading is that there's a it's it sounds dumb to call it a club, but like, I don't know if it's like an organization of some kind that sort of like surrounds Medal of Honor recipients. There is that's uh-huh. called the Congressional medal of honor society mm-hmm. and it's the medal of honor society of the congress but everybody just sort of like took that to mean that it's the society of winners of the congressional medal of honor so like the syntax there is like a little confusing yeah it's it's some extreme pedantry i don't think anyone really has a right to get that upset about it because it's just even in official you know form sometimes it's mislabeled i even think that when george bailey is talking about his brother in it's a wonderful life and he goes you know harry bailey's a hero he he saved all those men he won the congressional medal of honor and like you don't get more war hero than jimmy stewart he certainly knew what the hell that medal was and so if he's gonna mislabel it i'm like eh, it's whatever you should like read up on it and read the history and know what it's called but i don't get too upset about it to be honest that's cool. I was just curious if you had opinions, and you do. If we have any Medal of Honor winners in our audience, first of all, I'd like to interview you about your experience. And second of all, let us know how you feel and if it pisses you off when you hear a Congressional Medal of Honor. We like to hear from the experts on this show. That's why I'm here. Right. I want to talk about my boy, Edmund O'Brien. Oh, wow. The senator? I totally, yes. I totally thought you were going for Burt Lancaster here. Okay. No, man. I cannot tell you enough about how I love Edmund O'Brien's drunk ass Georgia senator, which, by the way, different time altogether. When are you going to see today the senator from Georgia being depicted as a Democrat? Right. In a seersucker suit, no less. I loved that. And drunk all the time. And also just hanging out with the president constantly and getting hammered in front of everyone. Hammered. Well, back in the 60s, you were just always getting drunk. Right. 
side note, I don't know what he did, but Edmund O'Brien served in the Army Air Corps, which means it was pre-1946 before the Air Force was created. Yeah. And uh, Edmund O'Brien learned magic from his neighbor, Houdini. What? Oh, my God. When he was a child, he lived next door to Harry motherfucking Houdini. I did not know that. That is insane. Who taught him some things, and he used to... He used to perform magic, like this little magic show. Uh, what did he call himself? The the Great Nearbo, which is <laughs> yes. O'Brien backwards. Oh, my God. See, I think that one of, like, Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster and Frederick March give great performances. But I think what really makes this film is the little side characters, because you don't know who you can trust in this. Mm-hmm. From Ava Gardner to Edmund O'Brien to personally the one that I question the most is Martin Balsam, who plays Paul Gerard. Yes. Who is the chief of staff for the president. He was in everything. He was. He's great. And in this, he plays that perfect fine line of being like, and because initially I was like, oh, he's in on it. He knows. And you don't know up until he goes to see the admiral whether or not he's actually in on this whole thing. Right. And I thought that was just fantastic because it is very much presented as Kirk Douglas is kind of picking apart these little clues and seeing weird behaviors. This goes really deep, this conspiracy. And not knowing who you can trust when there's a presidential assassination on the line is a pretty big fucking deal. And everybody gives it their all in this. And I think... For me, I think Paul Gerard was the standout because I was so like, mm, I feel like he's not trustworthy, but maybe he's just a politician. Well, one of the one of the the two Academy Awards that this was nominated for and didn't win was Edmund O'Brien was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Yes, yes. He would later win an Oscar again for Best Supporting Actor. And I was like, I'm racking my brain while I'm watching this, trying to think, because I know I've seen Edmund O'Brien and other things, but every time I think I've seen Edmund O'Brien, it actually turns out to be, what's his name? Thomas Mitchell from Gone with the Wind. Oh God. Uncle Billy. Thomas Mitchell. Yes. Uncle Billy from, from It's a Wonderful Life. Oh yeah, totally. Oh, they do look super similar. And that part is very similar. They play similar roles. Like Thomas Mitchell's the drunk doctor in Stagecoach. Isn't he the dad in- um, In Gone with the Wind, he's the dad. Also always drunk. Uh, Uncle Billy, always kind of drunk. So, but like a, a lot of similarities between the two of them. But I finally figured out where I saw him- and I'd like to do this on a DCE episode. He's in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Mm. Which oh, that would be great. Is not strict. It's a Western, not a war film, but it's also set against the backdrop of bleeding Kansas. Mm-hmm. It's like the frontier debating whether or not it wants statehood. Oh, okay. Kind of like that era. So again, close enough. But he is excellent in that as well. Like, dude always brings his A game. Is it possible that he's just one of those actors who needs to work drunk, and so they just wrote it into all his characters? Maybe. I get that feeling. I mean, it's a senator from Georgia in in the 60s. Right. In the summer. (laughs) Or in May, I guess. Just sweat. It's hot as hell in D.C. in the summer. I've been there during that time. But a couple of great moments from him that I wanted to point out 
One is like the moment when I wanted to stand up and cheer in this movie is when he dumps out the bourbon on the base. Yes, that's such a great scene. Because that's why you don't trust him. That's the that's the weak link with Ray Clark is that he's always drunk, can't not be drunk. And they just locked him in a room with some bourbon so that they can say, oh, well, he got drunk and he was belligerent. Like, bringing him a do. bottle an hour. I'm like, the what? Like, that's yeah, unnecessary. They've, they've been bringing these <laughs> bottles in here every hour on the hour. And then the counterpoint to that is Colonel Mud. Andrew Duggan. Mud and Jigs. I want to see that buddy road trip movie. Right. It is, and because you don't know if you can trust him because he's given a little bit of information to Jigs, but not enough to really tell us either way. And so uh, for me, the one of the biggest points of tension in the film is when he finally comes in and talks to the guy and you still don't know up until real close to the end whether or not he was in on it. And I think for me, for every single other character beyond the president and Casey, the tension of not knowing who they're going to support is what drives this story forward. And Here's where I'm going to bring up the queen, Ava Gardner, because, <laughs> oh, my God, what a role to play. For those of you who don't watch old movies, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rant a tiny bit here. Go ahead. For those who don't know, the Hayes Code was definitely in effect at this point. And the Hayes Code was very limiting as to what you could show in movies and still get your film released. It was like the MPAA, but worse. And to portray a woman who is not married who has had affairs and may have another one was huge. Like that was very controversial, incredibly. And that's one of the reasons I can guarantee you why she's such a drunk, because you couldn't portray someone who was doing that as being happy. You could portray it, but you had to show them paying the costs for their sins as it were. Mm. So Ava Gardner taking this role is such a powerful performance because she is, Although it never really comes to fruition with the president pushing this on the general of like, I have proof of your affair and proof that you are doing this. You know that regardless of which way it goes, her reputation and therefore her livelihood and life kind of lie in the balance here. As I was watching it, I kept thinking like, is it going to make her feel better to know why he's doing this? When he goes to her, you know, Casey goes to her house and tries to seduce the letters out of her. Badly. Very badly. He's so clumsy <laughs> about it. Even though it's like obvious that she knows what the fuck he's doing from the beginning. Um, but she thinks he's coming from the general. And he obviously cannot explain like, no, no, I'm here with the president. I'm trying to stop this shit because she may then go to the general. So it's like, would it make her feel better to know what he was doing, or does it really matter? Because either way, if these things come out, it's going to ruin her. Well, I think they address that in the movie, though. Do they? At the end, when he comes and he brings the letters back, and she says, your general was just shot down. And he said, yeah. And she's like, were these the, were these the bullets? And he said, they could have been, but they weren't. Yes. And then he's like, rain check. And she's like, tuck it someplace safe so it won't, so you won't lose it. But it didn't come out. What would have happened if it had? Right. But she knew she wasn't mad at him anymore because she knew why he did it, I think mm. is the question you were asking. Yes. And I, I agree. That's kind of. It was still shitty. Right. But she's like, okay, that's fair. 
Yeah, and that, I was glad that we got to see that scene because that was what I was... <laughs> my brain, that's what my brain was going to throughout the whole thing of like, will they, won't they use these letters? Because mm-hmm. I was like, are they going to fuck this lady over? Is that what they're going to do? Because Which, by the way, this was a plot point in an episode of The West Wing. Of course it was. Of course it was, because Aaron, Aaron Sorkin, Sorkin can't not do that. Someday we'll have opportunity to have a conversation about Aaron Sorkin And if anybody wants to know my thoughts on him, listen to my next Best Picture episode on The Social Network, because I go into great detail about my opinions on Aaron Sorkin there. (laughs) None of them good. None of them. But I think that they include that is very satisfying. Well, okay, I'm willing to forgive you. But would she have been willing to forgive him as much if that had been released to the media because that was the true threat not telling the general that they have them it's releasing it to the media as the proof of why the general did these things Hmm. and that that doesn't happen really impacts her life she is not then exposed to the entire world as being you know a an adulteress so i don't think I think this is not just the fact that this was a movie made primarily entirely by men. As most movies were at this time. Yes. And I don't think that the intention there was to actually publish the letters. No, I agree. I think that that was, but I think that was the. It was, it was the threat, but it was. Exactly. And it wasn't even to like use that as the excuse for firing him. It was to use that to get him to submit his resignation and to stand down. Mm-hmm. It's the leverage. It, it's the that leverage they have on him. because also, and Dan, you might, you could probably correct me on this. Isn't adultery against the the code of military conduct UCMJ yes it is it still is so like he could get dishonorably discharged over something like that i mean like that could be a it, thing that during happened. that time it's a justifiable reason i don't know if that's on the list of punishments for that particular crime but it's definitely something you could be disciplined for yes although i have to wonder those letters would have had to been pulled out at like the exact right timing to be able to have an effect because i feel like once this thing got rolling he's not going to give a shit about some love letters like once the once the wheels really got in motion on this coup i think in the 60s it would have been well it's but it's not the love letters it's not that there were love letters it's that because she states in the film that he revealed like what he was planning he revealed that information to her in the love letters. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, no, there's a conversation between her and Kirk Douglas where they're kind of talking around corners about what's actually going on right before Douglas like picks up the letters and leaves. Mm. And she talks about how forthcoming the general was with her. And so that's what's at stake is it's not that he had the affair or whatever. Gotcha. That's not a big deal. It's that he had told her in writing state secrets. This is what he was going to do. I didn't get that. What I got from that was that the letters were explicit to the point of borderline pornographic. Oh, no. I, I There is a line in there where she s- makes a statement about how forthcoming she was and her acting performance throughout the whole thing is very indicative of like 
she knows something is going on. She's aware of the circumstances behind all of this. And I think in my mind, as I'm watching it, that's why she gives them up is because she doesn't agree with Scott's behavior. Well, the so a couple of things that that lead me to disagree with it is that if the plan was outlined in the letter, they wouldn't need the written statement from the admiral because it would have just been, hey, you wrote down your treason in this letter. We can redact who it's to and still have your name on this signing that, oh, I'm planning this thing. And when they're reading the letters later, they're more kind of like sort of salivating over them. Yeah, you feel like it's salacious. Being like, oh my goodness, kid. Oh, this is, whoo, he's not such a nice man now, is he? James Mattoon Scott likes it dirty, is what I think those letters say. Those those cold eyes tell you everything you need to know about that guy. I mean, I I, I don't know. I, you can run with this Glass idea. Glass plugs and nipple clamps is, is what James <laughs> Mattoon Scott is into. Okay. Too far, Liam. <laughs> so you can run with that idea, but I don't think any of these things are excluding one another. And I think that the Admiral's testimony in writing at the time when there were messages going back and forth and the whole horse betting language and all of that was so concurrent that I think they would have taken as many pieces of evidence and confessions as they could have. So I don't think necessarily that Katie's wrong at all, and she's quoting a line where that's where she's getting her opinion. I think both things are probably at play. Yeah, I think it was more of him talking, like being so explicit in writing to her while he has a wife and a career, and he's so high profile. That's probably part of it, too. What do you guys think about the casting? Because not having any exposure to Ava Gardner before this... I was sort of looking at IMDb, looking at younger pictures of her, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, this is no Grace Kelly in her mid-20s. This is a 42-year-old woman who is mm-hmm. past the, like, peak of her prime in Hollywood for the time, right? This is this is washed up Ava Gardner. Yeah, this is progressive casting for the time period. That's what I was thinking. But also, it is, as Liam said, because I'm not going to say it washed up Ava Gardner and everybody knows that you know going to the movies everybody knew about this everybody was very aware of who was who in Hollywood and so having Ava Gardner play that character who is supposed to be a discarded lover is a very appropriate usage of her it's kind of on the nose Yeah, a little too on the nose. Yeah, and Ava Gardner looks like someone who enjoys a few drinks in real life. You know what I mean? Like, the the casting fit the character well. She was married to Frank Sinatra, wasn't she? Yeah, she absolutely did. Ava Gardner was uh, fantastic. Could definitely make a martini in real life, I'm sure. The casting was really good there. This film has a really steady pacing, and I think that's one of its strongest points in that I think for a lot of people it might be a little slow, but it's very steady in how it ramps it up and gives time for each scene to unfold. For example, the scene where Casey follows the senator after the party, Mm -hmm. you know, when he tells Ava Gardner, oh, give me a rain check, and he follows the senator and sees him go to the general's house. Like, each of those moments is allowed to unfold 
in its own time. And this, all of the scenes with the Georgia senator are, I'm going to say, painfully slow, but not in a bad way, in a way that is very much designed to ramp up the tension of the film. And also, Edmund O'Brien chews every single line he's given. Yes, yes. Oh, so, oh. Oh, he gets his, like, just like, it's it's like a big piece of steak that you really have to work on for a little bit. Bigger bombs, better bombs, more bombs. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, God, just say it again. Especially the scene where uh, the guy goes to the crash site. Mm-hmm. And it shows him walking and we see the cigarette case with the note in it. And then you wonder... Is this going to come back? Is this the Chekhov's gun of this film? And of, of course, it's the Chekhov's yeah, gun. Yeah, now of this you film. know it has to make it just in time. But I don't know if that was necessarily as obvious at the time as as loudly telegraphed, right? At the time, it, it very well might have been. But this is one of those films that really sets a lot of these tropes. Mm-hmm. The Manchurian Candidate, Three Days of the Condor, that type of thing. Like, these are the films that inform our current directors and screenwriters of what is the signal to audiences. So I could definitely see how at the time it had a little bit more tension. Yeah. Whereas now I was like, okay, well, that's 95% certain this is going to come back. <laughs> but but maybe it won't. Maybe it won't. And... And it is the final thing that makes Scott surrender. Yeah, they send it to the Joint Chiefs. And then they're all like, mm, just kidding. We're not going to do it anymore. There, so there's a couple of things that I wanted to, to mention. One is that the scene in the studio at the end when it's like slipping away and he was like, well, fuck you guys. I'm going to do it anyway. Like, yeah, I'll show you what yep. real metal, is. you know, like that, that whole thing reminded me an awful lot of the end of a face in the crowd, which was six years earlier, which mm. if you haven't seen, it's an old Elliot Kazan film. Speaking of the Hollywood blacklist mm-hmm. with uh, Andy Griffith. That's right. That's right. With all of his aw shucks, Mayberry. One of his uh, more transformative roles where he really does something different. Like it's all there, but it's all just a little bit twisted and it's super creepy. And, and like this, it's super relevant to today, but it, it reminded me very much of the end of a face in the crowd. My, my big question for you guys regarding the script, the acting, the directing, the movie, because Katie, we're talking about the pacing. And the build. And I think this movie has a fantastic build to it. It's kind of building through the whole thing to the showdown between Frederick March and Burt Lancaster. And I'm curious if you guys thought that that scene holds up today or if it was the payoff that you wanted to have. I know you think I'm a weak sister, General. You're not a weak sister, Mr. President. You're a criminally weak sister. It is weaker. Rashid has seen it. It was exactly what I wanted. I felt like it definitely holds up. And that may be because I'm a, and I'm interested to hear Dan's take on this, because as someone who grew up watching old movies, the difference in dialogue and conversation and all of that doesn't bother me. It doesn't impinge on my ability to immerse myself in the film. 
So for me, that that was kind of one of the scenes about halfway through that I was waiting for. It was like, I cannot wait to watch these two very strong-willed men come together and have essentially a philosophical dialogue about their different opinions on nuclear war, because that is at its heart what this whole film is about, is about nuclear armaments and trusting other nations and all of that stuff. And they have this very deep dialogue about that. And for me, it worked really well. But I can see how maybe current audiences would feel like it's a bit trite or surface level. So Dan, what did you think? So again, having watched it twice, I really tried to absorb the context of this film, the time it was made in, etc. And I liked both the showdown between the president and Scott, as well as the final speech, they were well-written, believable dialogue and kind of subtle. I think for me, it hits a little bit of that would be the perfect climax in a book, but it's a little bit underwhelming for a film. Mm -hmm. Does it feel heavy-handed? No, it's not that it felt heavy-handed. It wasn't that. I just felt like I needed a scene somewhere in there. And I'll give you a comparison. Now, this is a very different film, and I'm not comparing them in skill level or rating or anything like that. I won't yell at you. It's okay. (laughs) If you think about the third act or second half of Valkyrie. Ooh, which I still haven't seen. Ah. Spoil it. It's fine. We're definitely going to do that here. Well, there's no spoiling because that's real history. But- right. The, the point being, that is about a military- They kill Hitler in that one, right? Well, it's about a military coup against Hitler that really did happen, and an assassination attempt. They shoot him in the face with Tommy guns. No, that's a different movie. Okay, sorry. So no bomb goes off in this scene is the problem? No, no. I'm not talking about the bomb. God damn it, Liam. <laughs> You've thrown him off his game, Liam. So what I would have liked to see- is a little bit more of the trickle-down conversations and orders in the chain of command from these big, high Pentagon higher-ups to the actual troops. You hear about it. You hear about these planes mobilizing to El Paso, etc. But I could have really used a couple of scenes of big groups of men moving and just a little bit of that conversation. What are the men thinking? What are they doing when this coup is going on? What are they thinking? What are what are all the people in between these four-star generals and admirals and commanders? I could have used a little bit of that. Valkyrie has this buildup to a military coup against Hitler that is almost successful. And you literally have this almost comical movement of troops where they're like, oh, we're getting activated. Here's our orders. Does the secret code match? Yeah, it matches. Oh shit, this is for real. And it's like, boom, we're mobilizing. We're getting in trucks. Things are happening. They're moving towards buildings. And then the government takes over and calls it off. And now you see a stand down between different officers where one has a set of orders that's like, no, Hitler's not dead and we're not doing this. And the other has a set of orders that Operation Valkyrie is in full effect. Granted, again, I realize this is a different film, and I'm not asking for a scene quite like that. I'm just saying I could have used a little bit more climax in the mobilization of the military part of it. All we get is the desert scene where the senator is being escorted out and they almost don't make it. And then the sort of attempted kidnapping of the president where they were waiting for him on that boat. I would have liked the ending just as much had it just had the climax gone another 20 feet up 
for for me personally. That's that's all I felt I was missing. It doesn't ruin the film for me or anything like that. I still think it's a great film, but that's the only hit that I would give it from my perspective. I can see that because we get that scene. The only real evidence of that is the scene we get with Mud. Because he seems like just a regular guy trying to do his thing and following orders and all of that. And so we only really get to see his reaction to the reality of the situation. Whereas how would the guys who are following them when he's trying to take the senator out, they're all like, oh, God, stop him. No. But do those guys really know what's going on? Because Mud is supposed to be pretty high up in the command structure. So... It makes sense that they're just following orders and doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, yeah, I can I can see how that would have felt a little more fulfilling. I also wonder if the reason we don't get that is because the Pentagon didn't want this movie to happen. If it had Pentagon support, I wonder if we could have gotten more of that mobilization stuff. But like the stuff that we see on the screen is actually stock footage from another movie from the 50s. Right. I mean, you wouldn't have necessarily had to have shown anything big. I'm not saying it had to be big troop movements. I just wanted to see the... What I'm missing here is the internal conflict of the military. If you're going to depict... So let's say that a civil war breaks out where citizens are fighting each other. The military might have to pick a side. Or or you might have internal conflict mm-hmm. where people are deciding, do we follow the president? Do we follow the right? Do we follow the left? Same with a revolution. Same with a coup. You're going to have different political motivations and different opinions within the military rank structure about whether what's going on is a lawful order or not. Because you're supposed to disobey and fight unlawful orders. Right. So that's what I'm saying. I don't need to see you know a bunch of bombers turning around and going back. But I would have liked to see a little bit more of the up and down the chain conflict, whereas that part was too smooth for me. It's like they've got this exercise going on and it's seemingly all the people involved just think it's an exercise. But these generals are just going to take control of it and kidnap the president. And next thing you know, boom, the military's in charge. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of the struggle that these generals would have actually had in convincing the lower ranks of the military of what they were doing, because if it's just a secret and nobody really knows what you're doing, I mean, maybe that's part of it is we don't know how this would have turned out because the conflict would have happened after they kidnapped the president and after they mobilized troops. That's when maybe a whole other movie would have happened, which is this internal rebellion in the military where maybe some other officer is like, we need to rescue the president. We need to stop this. Maybe that's the next seven days in May. You know, what I mean? right. like maybe that's in the sequel. But that's right. the thing that my gut was telling me I was missing as part of the climax and end of the conflict of the film. That's what I was trying to gotcha. say. Gotcha. Now it's time for our breakdown, where we talk about what the objective of this film was, whether it was on target or not, and did we like it? Liam, why don't you go first? Ooh, I'll go first. Liam loves to go first, folks. <laughs> I do. Well, no. So this is a this is a movie that I think the book and the 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 film have a similar, fairly clear message regarding the balance of power in our government, respect of the democratic process, and warning against warmongering, fearmongering. And the the overmilitarization of the society as a whole, in addition to being pro nuclear disarmament, 
it's very relevant in its time because I don't know when they were shooting this exactly, but the Cuban Missile Crisis was in October of 62. So in 63, when this came out. 64 is when this came out. Oh, did it, I thought it was 63. It was supposed to come out in 63, but then Kennedy got shot. All of that would have been informed in large part by the Cuban Missile Crisis. This, this shit was very, very real. In a lot of ways, it is still very, like if you take the nukes out of the equation, most of the rest of this movie feels very relevant to today. The attack on the Capitol on January 6th. What happens when somebody decides they are going to have power regardless of the outcome of an election? There are places where it feels kind of quaint today. Honestly, again, it opens up with protesters fighting each other in the streets outside of the White House, which JFK actually rearranged his schedule to not be in the White House so that they had the opportunity to shoot that scene. So again, like huge support from from the president to get this film made. But even that brawl in the street feels quaint compared to the things that we've seen on the news today. The idea of people having this kind of unshakable faith in the in the democratic process, a lot of it, where it doesn't hold up, I feel like is not necessarily the fault of the movie, but the fact that like that's where the world has gotten to, that something even this stark and the 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 repercussions and the stakes are so high in the world of the film can still manage to feel a little bit quaint is I think a bad thing. Let me just put that on the, on the record. It's a bad thing that this movie looks a little naive now as opposed to when it was made. So I think it loses a little bit, a little bit in that, but by and large, I think it's pretty on target. It's on target in its time. Definitely. And it's, it, it it hits pretty hard now, but it, it's like when you watch a science fiction movie that was made in like the seventies and it depicts 1999 and now we're in 2020, <laughs> 2021. And you're just like, Oh wow. I remember 1999 shit was not like that, bro. It has a little bit of that going for it, where it's like, in the near future, this is the kind of thing that could happen. Buddy, wait till I tell you about the near future, because this shit has been insane. That's what I feel like is the the problem with the movie as it relates to today, is that we've gone so much further. Like, take the nukes out of it, but we've gone so much further than this movie even could have predicted in terms of the absolute clusterfuck of shit show yeah just the breakdown of dialogue between everybody ever anywhere is pretty bad so that's my view of the world i i don't like the world much but i love this movie this movie so much better than the world for my money (laughs) this this imaginary world so much better than reality katie so the objective of this film is very much to discuss the balance of government. It is the balance of a the military versus the executive versus the legislative branch 
and who gets to say what military conflicts we engage in, who gets to decide for our country, our nuclear mission, our military mission, our perspective on foreign policy. All of those things are very much wrapped up in this film, but in a way that if you're not a regular watcher of the news and stuff, like you're not going to get that. But for those of us who do, like this feels very current, even though, like you said, Liam, the conflicts are like nuclear. eh, No one is all about nuclear war or nuclear warheads right now. We all know that shit's bad because it's bad for the environment. It will kill society, all of that stuff. So the conflicts have become far more philosophical about what's the right, what is the right kind of government? What's the right way to lead a people? And and I think this film taps into those more basic concepts of, are we an aggressive nation at our base? Are we trusting? Is it better to be trusting? Is it better to be aggressive? Because in today's day and age, I can, as someone who watches politics, I can absolutely see how General Scott's perspective appeals to a certain a certain kind of person, because it is very militaristic and aggressive, and like you can't trust anyone, and that's the safer option. It's much safer to assume that everyone is out to get you than to trust people. And in my opinion, trust is the only way that we move forward as a society. And that's kind of seems to be the opinion of the film and the president in this movie. So I think the objective of the film is really to make people question their government, question these decisions and ask themselves, you know, for every viewer, how do you feel about this? What would you do if you were in Colonel Casey's position? Would you go to the president? Would you pursue this? Would you support the president if this was the case? If, if you know, nuclear dearmament was actively and aggressively pursued and you had a role to play in that, how would you react? And I think that's one of the deeper and more interesting questions that this film asks. And I love that people were both able and willing to make those arguments then. Because as we talked about, with the House Un-American Activities Committee and all of that, like these were dangerous questions to ask at the time. It wasn't easy or safe to be the person pushing these ideas and asking this of the American people. And film in the 1960s was in a place where it was really trying to walk this middle line of not being offensive to anyone and that failed miserably (laughs) because film is all over the place these days. But with the Hayes Code and uh, government interference and all of that, it really did have an impact on what kind of stories, what kind of messages, the kind of characters we saw on screen, all of that stuff. How good a kisser Kirk Douglas could be. Oh, he he was better than this film. That's all I can say, because he looks like a terrible kisser in this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like, I, I think... This film is really trying to say a lot in its two-hour runtime. And it was pretty long for the time period. I mean, films were not 
that two hours was really long for this era. So whether or not it succeeds, I think it does. I think they are able to get audiences to ask those kinds of questions. And the film has maintained its presence as being one of the foremost Cold War films, one of the foremost uh, political thrillers out there. It still impacts society today, even with Liam talking about uh, Aaron Sorkin. You know, we're still seeing people who are affected by these kinds of narratives today. And I liked it because I like asking myself those questions. I like thinking about these philosophical ideas of what is the president's place versus the army's place versus Congress and uh, the American people. What role do we all play in how we execute our foreign policy and therefore interact on the world stage? Because each of these things has a domino effect of affecting everything around us. And I love it when films ask difficult questions. It was really hard to find films that were as obvious as this one is about asking difficult questions in that time period. Because to be clear, and here's my to be clear for this episode. <laughs> Katie's catchphrase. Uh, if we ever make an action figure out of Katie with a little pull string, the like <laughs> sentence one is going to be, to be clear. <laughs> I, I hate it now. I feel really self-conscious every time I do it. <laughs> we love it. We love you. You betcha. Uh, no, and I never say <laughs> I you betcha know. because it's, it's, it feels weird. There are films of this era that asked similarly difficult, not the same kind of question, but similarly difficult questions. They just shrouded them in fluff and filler in order to make them acceptable for the Hayes Code. But this film is very obvious about what it's trying to say, which was very controversial for the time period. So I love that it takes these risks. I love that Kirk Douglas is the one who takes these risks. And he perfectly captures that conflict within a man who, as a military person of incredibly high rank, when he is asked to give his political opinion, he is very self-effacing. Like, I don't really feel that's appropriate for me to do. And you can tell in his scene where he goes to the president that he feels very conflicted about it, that he is going over his superior's head, which is a big deal. Even in my mundane day-to-day -day office job, going over my boss's head, pretty scary. So to go from, you know, General Scott to the president, I can't even imagine the strength and courage that takes. The film does something that is pretty courageous for the time it was filmed. And I'll probably watch it again, at, at the very least once or twice, because I'm so fascinated with the relationships and even the filmmaking of how it all comes together, because it's very unique for the time period. And it really is kind of, as someone who's an avid 70s film watcher, it's definitely a, a harbinger of what is to come. A film no longer being the candy of the masses, because that's a lot of what film was in the early 60s and 50s in general. It was very much, oh, here, don't worry about what's going on. Just watch this movie. It's fine. And this film really asks difficult questions. And I think that's 
admirable, and I'm really glad we chose to watch it. Dan, what do you think? It wasn't relevant enough to interrupt you or to add to your points, but I was just going to say, don't forget that Casey is not extremely high ranking in the context of who he's around. The Pentagon has like dozens of generals in it. A colonel. I was actually going to ask you about that. Where is he in this rank? Okay, so a good friend of mine is a major. He worked in Intel before, and he just got a job at the Pentagon, and he described it as entry level. So the Lieutenant JG, the one who gets moved to Pearl Harbor because he's like too talky. Pearl Harbor? Yeah. I think I got some kind of a guardian angel around here. I don't know how many of those you have because that is the first officer rank in the Navy. That dude would have been like 22. That's like you're just out of college. You're a lieutenant. You're a butter bar, Lieutenant JG. So I don't know how many of those you have at the Pentagon. And I imagine you still have some enlisted people, but a colonel is not a high rank in the context of the Pentagon. So it'd be very normal for Jigs to be like, whoa, why are you asking me about politics? I'm just a colonel at the Pentagon, you know? Whereas a general, you might get them, especially a joint chief member, you might get them to like give their opinion a little bit more. Don't forget that while a colonel is super high ranking, if he walks through like boot camp, you're like, oh, fuck, it's the colonel. Like a colonel normally is going to be a battalion commander like Mel Gibson and We Were Soldiers. That's a lieutenant colonel to colonel job. So... Is colonel above major or is major? Yeah, the, the three middle ranks of officers in general are gold oak leaf, major, silver oak leaf, lieutenant colonel, and then colonel is the uh, eagle, 040506. That totally makes sense of how Douglas plays this and how like, eh, I don't, I don't, I'm a little, I'm a little nervous. Yeah, he's in that in-between stage. He's like at 18 years of service. And if he wants to, he can finish off his career at the Pentagon re-enlisting. But as a colonel at the Pentagon, he's not making big decisions. He is helping generals with meetings and shit. He's an adjutant. Right, he's an assistant. But he's also the assistant to Scott. That's why people give a shit what he has to say. That's that's fascinating. Okay. that's Because that's kind of what I drew from his performance, that he wasn't high up enough to just be like swinging his dick around, but that he was high up enough to get an audience with the president and go and be like, Hey, I'm really super sorry to bother you with this, but I think somebody might be trying to kill you. And I apologize greatly for that. (laughs) It'd be interesting to ask my friend in a few months after a few months that he's there and has gone to some parties, depending on COVID, it would be interesting to ask him the cultural perspective of like, what, what's that like? Because I wonder if, Jigs would have even been invited to that party that had senators and shit. Well, it. And like, it, it seemed like he was invited because Lancaster just wasn't available. So it's like right. he was going in his stead to That's be the totally plausible, I think. Yeah. So yeah. So the objective of this to me was I guess it's a little preachy. I don't mean it in the negative sense. I just mean that it has a real message to tell the viewer. It's not a like, oh, interpret this how you want. I mean, you can have your own political leanings and opinions, but I think the objective is to warn Americans against over-militarism and also to show support for the democratic process. General Scott's actions are shown in a negative light, And it's like, we kind of have to keep our generals in check because if we allow this to happen, 
the fabric of our democracy is going to fall apart. And I think that's a fair warning. Was it on target? I think 80% it was on target. I described earlier my problems with like, I wish they'd shown a little bit more of the internal turmoil in the military in the film. And of course, I think the main cipher and the main representative of this moral conundrum is Colonel Casey himself. He's just trying to do his job, but then he starts to get word of these things that are going on and little subtle hints. That's another thing I really like is the slow buildup. They just give you little bits and pieces and none of it is damning by itself. But for someone who has seen all these little pieces of evidence add up, it makes sense. But we just watched Damnation Alley for our (laughs) Danger Close Enough episode. Oh God. I've been trying not to mention it. I think ignoring the last 90% of that film, but just thinking about that first scene where this nuclear Holocaust potential thing actually happens and you see the perspective of the military in those rooms. I think that's a very good visual depiction of kind of what the audience would have feared in the back of their minds in the early sixties, this whole nuclear scare and thinking about, you know, is this conflict going to end all of life as we know it and turn the earth into a wasteland? We haven't really been faced with that in the way that it was really imminent in the fifties and sixties. We've had terrorist attacks, still the countries that had nukes then have nukes now. So it's always there and around on the table, but it wasn't, you know, our kids aren't, our kids aren't in school doing a nuclear attack drills and getting under their desks for that, et cetera. Like they think there was a real, fear of this happening, which of course puts politics and the general sense that Americans are going to have in a dangerous place because you're going to be way more lenient towards a stronger military because it's going to keep you safe. So all these conflicts are going on in the background. And I think that context is there. I really can't fault the film for what it didn't project was going to happen in the future and what kind of political climate we're in now. But I think that for the time, it would have been a real reminder of if we don't have diplomacy and we don't have discourse and we don't have the democratic process, then we don't have anything because inevitably that's going to result in all out war. And in the end, that's what the military is good at. But you see this point come up often where with the exception of General Scott, the military officers are kind of like, well, especially Jigs is like, well, that's politics. I try and stay out of politics. Like I'm here to support and defend the constitution, but I leave the politics to DC. And actually Scott says that too. At one point, I think he says, I leave the politics to DC, which he kind of didn't, but that's the general sense that you're supposed to have as a military officer. And so Yeah, I think they really did a good job of depicting that. And my issues with the climax, again, may be a little bit more just a contemporary modern viewing of the film. The pacing was a little slower at times. I would say, yes, I like this film, but it took me two tries to like it. That's fair. The first time I was a little underwhelmed and the pacing kind of was a little slow for me. But like a lot of other things I've seen that can do that, once I know the context, know I've read a little bit more on the history and know the characters better then I'm not as lost and I'm understanding the nuance of these conversations. And so I did really like it on my second viewing. And I haven't seen the Manchurian Candidate or anything else really that has this feel to it in the US in this time period. So I'm really glad that we watched it. So thank you, Liam, for picking it. You're welcome. And don't feel bad about that. 
something that I've noticed is that even Citizen Kane, I don't know anybody that liked Citizen Kane the first time they watched it. <laughs> myself, mean... myself included. But then like you go back and you watch it a second time and then it kind of hits better. I mean, Orson Welles was a complicated man. He was a complicated man. The third man, I think, is his best. Well, that's because he didn't direct that. I know. <laughs> that was Carol Reed. Mm -hmm. Oliver Reed's uncle, I think. Carol Reed is a, a very good director. But you can't ignore how great Orson Welles is in that as a brash, opinionated asshole. Right. There's a line, and I don't remember exactly how it's phrased in the movie. It's not one of the standout, like, I think there's a military plot to take over the government in seven days. Oh, with the camera? With the with the Yeah, pan it's in. not one of those, like, zoom in, like, brother, I'm going to tell you the damnedest story you ever heard. Like, it's not one of those moments. It's during that climactic scene between Frederick March and Burt Lancaster. Is, you know, because they're talking about, like, how do you protect the country? Like, how do you maintain the country? How do you preserve the country? And the gist of Frederick March's line is, you can't stage a coup to preserve the country. That's not a thing that you can actually do. Right. You've broken it at that point. If you'd been successful, it already would have been over. You can't take power in a democracy through fascist force. And still maintain that it's a democracy. And, and keep it the same country. And this right. is this is something that is a, a, a thought, an idea that was actually kind of prevalent in the filmmaking at the time. Because I don't remember the exact year it came out, but it's, a, it's another thought that came out in uh, uh, Judgment at Nuremberg, which was roughly the same filmmaking time period. Uh, might have been a little before this, might have been a little after. But I think this is, a again... A movie that I think we're going to keep sort of like touching back to throughout this whole process. Oh, I love it. Oh, and Jerry Goldsmith did the score. That's another connection <laughs> oh. between this and Damnation Alley. They brought him in at the last minute, too. I realized that like today as I was writing my uh, mission briefing, I looked and I was like, really, Jerry Goldsmith? Really? You going to haunt us like that? And and he does great in this. Yeah, like they had somebody else doing the score and then like they didn't like what he did. So they fired him and then they were like, hey, Jerry, can you write us something real quick? And he's like, can I? So, Katie, what are we doing next? Next time we are covering The Blue Max, which is a 1966 film directed by John Gillerman, starring George Pappard, James Mason, and Ursula Andress. Ooh. And it is about a young pilot in the German Air Force during World War I who really tries to make himself look better. It'll be a little different than anything we've done so far. Nice. And... It has been requested several times by our listeners, so we'll have at least a few people that'll be happy to hear that. So, if you tuned in today to this episode, we want to thank you for listening. We'll have a new episode of Danger Close Enough coming out for our patrons, as well as uh, the bonus episode that is going to be free for everyone with Paul Salmon, where we talk Starship Troopers, will be out before this so you guys will be able to get a taste of what we do on Danger Close Enough. If you want to sign up, it's four bucks a month. You can do it through dangerclosepod.com forward slash support or go to Patreon and look up Danger Close. 
If you're not in our discussion group, lots of good discussion going on over there on Facebook. So just search Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group and join us there. We chime in with all kinds of stuff. Liam gets destroyed by feminists sometimes. It's uh, really a good time all around. Your girlfriend. Shout out to my girl, Jackie. (laughs) Fucking doing me dirty like that. Jackie the Destroyer. I love her for that. Anyways, thanks everyone for listening and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, guys. Bye. Like Liam's dejected by the Bye. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Bye, Jackie. I actually did some reading on this. No, Morty. One. Morty did too. Morty did. And Morty did the reading. Trying to eat my cords. I would like to introduce Morty to the regular listeners because we've edited out most of these moments, but I'm starting to leave him in or kind of throw him in post credits of all the times that Katie has to yell at her cat Morty because he likes to sneak up and chew on her microphone cord in the middle of recording. So he's, he's an adorable chonky tabby <laughs> who I love with all my heart, but is 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 so, so naughty. Morty. So if you hear Katie yelling at the cat, uh, that's what that is. Morty, stop it. Morty. Get down. No. Stop it, you butt. No, Morty. Morty, stop it. Jesus, primo piano. What's that called in English? Um, I have no idea. Like, there's a. Fragile. Must be Italian. What's the literal translation from Italian? An up-close shot. Uh, Well, Primo Piano is a first, like a first sheet or first plane. So it's like right in front of the camera. A close-up would be the term. A close-up? Okay. So there... (laughs) Now I sound like an idiot. (laughs) What do you call it when you you have the cameras really close up to the thing? thing, Is it a close-up? Was I that? Was I right there? It's right up there. (laughs) 